0: Almost, a novel by Stefan Molyneux, host of Free Domain, the world's largest and most popular philosophy show. This is book two. If you want to start at book one, which I strongly suggest that you do, you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash almost. Book two Tom prepares to go to Germany. It is odd thought Tom, that I have so few people to tell that I am going away for two months. He had to tell his family, of course, because he was going to be away from the end of November to the end of January, and so would miss the holidays. The truth was that Tom was actually quite relieved to be out of England for Christmas. There was something terribly complicated and messy about his relations with his family. He had to avoid even thinking about them, since it generally made him either cry, get angry, or give up and be depressed. There was a great hole in his heart where his family portrait should have hung. The primary problem was his mother. This was one of the great disappointments of Tom's adult life. He had felt depressingly special with his mother, she had always called on him to ease her pain. She got very skittish on the rare occasions when Reginald came sidling into her room and usually had to take a nap after he had left. But she grew florid and torrential when she was alone with Tom. Tom, Tom, Tom was the constant solve to her wounded heart. Tom hated this, but he also loved it. Well, not quite loved, it was more, more as if... His choices had always been twofold. First, he could have a mother who shied away from him as if he were carrying a bomb or about to burst into acid or was a wolf in child's clothing. He could have a mother who fought with him without words, without quarter, without end. He could have a mother who recoiled from his very presence. He could be Reginald or he could have a mother who clung to him like a choking vine. Tom could not help but remember, whenever he thought of his mother's loggeria the time when she had cornered him in his room late at night, when he was about nine. He was idly working on a maze game, drawing his exit routes in light pencil, unable to find the way out. She sat and talked about her courtship with Quentin all the things they had misinterpreted, all they had assumed that later caused them troubles, and hinted very broadly about something untrustworthy that her husband had done early on, shortly after Reginald was born. Tom had glanced again and again at the maze game he had been working on. This memory stayed with him for years because he could never figure out how to shut his mother up. She had a sort of desperate inability to be alone without collapsing into herself. She needed Tom in a way which she did not need anyone else in the family. Lying alone in his bed, before sleeping with his heart hammering from another bare escape from his mother's claws, he imagined that he was away and that his mother drew Reginald into her nest. He imagined Reginald's incomprehension and withering scorn. He imagined his mother trying to climb the fierce, crumbling walls of his brother's half-closed eyes. He imagined all these things, and he hated himself in his heart, and he respected his brother. Reginald doesn't let her pillage him that way, he thought. Reginald doesn't let her pillage him in any way. She keeps her distance from him. He has put the fear of God into her. So much the better. She does not keep her distance from me. I am a soft village of little girls. She is a Viking horde. Well, that's a rather creepy image. Tom did not hate his mother, not in the way that Reginald did, and that was the problem. Tom fought with her in his own way. When she drew him into the endless folds of her endless words, Tom found his way out after a time. He said that he was tired or had some schoolwork to do, or had to go to the bathroom, she would never follow him out of her room, where he would hide for half an hour or more. He tried to walk the line between his need to flee and his mother's need to talk. Ruth could get angry. That was the problem. If Tom struggled too hard to free himself from her web of words, she would strike out at him. These stings were deep, "'hurtful and brought instant obedience from Tom. "'Ruth hated using them "'and only allowed herself the luxury of poisoning her young "'if there was really no other way. "'If she had to either talk at Tom or go mad, "'then she would keep him there. "'And really, no one suffered like she did. "'She was no strict disciplinarian. "'Why could he not spare her a few more minutes?' What was more important than helping her? What kind of child would want to squirm away from a suffering mother to play another stupid game with his stupid tin soldiers? His wandering eyes, desperate to flee, made her feel terrible. He was making her feel terrible. And what had she done to him? She was only trying to talk to him, the little heartless fiend. And so Ruth would snarl at him. Her voice would instantly change from the insistent monotone of Lagaria to a savage, tension-whipped cry. You are not listening! And then the tears or the turning away, and he would have to climb out of himself and wander the wasteland of his mother's heart in search of her lost and hidden soul. Since Tom had gone to Oxford he had lost his special tortuous relationship with his mother. His parents had reunited to some degree based on some change which Tom did not understand, and his mother had left him in the wake of their resurrected relationship, churning in an abandoned froth. And it was not that he missed her talking or her insistence or her sudden questions which snapped him out of a tense, dreamy haze. It was that it was hard for him to escape the fact, the opinion... He kept telling himself that she had gone over to Quentin and Reginald's side. Tom and Ruth were the broken hearts of the household. That much had seemed clear. The sorrow of the home was the mourning ground of their mutual fusion. They gathered to mourn birds flown, brothers lost and fathers fallen away. The wild grief which sprayed from Ruth's pores, drowning Tom's young sapling like an unholy burning rain, was their secret connection. Her fear of war, which had something to do with his fearlessness, he knew that even as a teenager, his fear of her, their mutual hatred of Reginald, and disappointed distance from Quentin, all this, Tom thought, would unite them for life but it was not to be. It did not turn out. When Tom went away to school, he looked for his mother's letters every day. She did write wonderful letters, and the welling sadness, which Tom felt intermittently, like an inner tide of oiled and sightless otters rolling slowly in and out, could always be released by his mother's words. They were manageable in writing. He could pick them up or put them down. They made him cry, but it was good to cry. But they did not come. Well, they did come, of course, but when they came, they were, in comparison to the endless fields of words they had formerly roamed together, utterly empty. Details of Quentin's electoral campaign, comments on the newspaper, books she had read preparing to be a political wife, which she recommended, greetings from neighbours, news of their children, and... and weather... Tom had never known his mother to comment on weather, not once in their whole experience together, but paragraphs of details on the skies beyond her former walls. And this weather broke Tom's heart in secret, shameful places, for he knew that she had been healed by his leaving. He fell into a depression every time he got one of his mother's rare letters. I have gone, and she is better, he thought, gnashing agonized teeth into a wet pillow. And all the over-eloquence of her former heart, that was all gone. She has stopped talking to me, and she is better, he thought, and had to almost wring out his pillow. I thought I was helping her, but I was hurting her. And last most galling. Reginald was right. He was right to keep his distance. If I had kept my distance, she would have been healed years ago, and we should have a dozen more family portraits without a smiling hole where our mother should have been. It was the pact of silence. Tom knew that. He was never to probe the end of her endless tongue. He was to accept that all garrulous castaways had been thrown overboard without mercy, without regret, and the ship had changed course therewith. He was never to speak of this new, shiny silence. When he was packing to go to Germany, Tom's mind kept returning to his mother. He kept pausing as he folded, standing stock still for sometimes fifteen minutes at a time, thinking. So I shall not be home for Christmas, and so I have changed my habits with my family, and so I am beginning to really feel my family for the first time. But the fact was that he did not want to go home for Christmas. Ruth, quicksand that she was, had at least embraced him, sometimes right to the end of his oxygen, true, but it was a holding nonetheless, and it was enough. But now he could go home for Christmas and he could sit and choke on his food under the indifferent gaze of his family. He had no more secrets with his mother. There were no more alliances. Everyone had chosen their side. And no one has chosen mine, he thought, dropping a sudden tear onto his favorite jumper. It really was too close to self-pity. He tried to be stern with himself, but sagged, under the sagging bed, closing his eyes, feeling his lashes merge into oozing wetness, shaking his head slowly. "'What have I done that is so offensive, oh, my mother?' He had never expected, not really, as far as expectations can really die within a family. Sometimes Tom expected his uncles and grandfather to come back to life, or for their deaths to have been a mistake and rescue him from his mother, his mother from himself.' He had never really expected for a thawing from Reginald or his father. They spoke a language which admitted no reversals. Their tongues were dry like little pillows, and they stroked Tom into a stupor. Their laughter was never inclusive. They always provoked tenterhooks, glances behind, and a fear that paper was stuck to his shoe or that his fly was undone. They found his flaws and laughed them into absurd prominence. No, there was to be no quarter from them. There was no room for his lake of tears, no room for a blubberer. He was better off upstairs with his mother twirling each other's hair and whining about the injustice and coldness of the bad, bad world. "'You always play the victim,' Reginald often said, which was true enough to hurt but not true enough to help. Tom had a terrible, crippling inability to hurt others with words. He was constantly wounded and defamed by his brother in his early years in boarding school before he discovered his abilities as a sportsman and rose socially. He could never say anything in return. He always felt paralyzed, helpless in the face of his brother's rage. Reginald was impervious, he was an armored giant before Tom's petty pea-shooter. Tom used to imagine how he could hurt his brother. He was not naturally virtuous, at least not in any sense he knew then. He really wanted to. He fantasized about it. He wanted to hit Reginald with a chair, a cricket bat, a tree, more than once until it would have to be a closed coffin. And he felt that destroying his brother was more important than just hurting his brother. He felt that destroying his brother would save the world somehow. But it was impossible. Some of the words imagined by Tom, with Reginald's probable responses... Mother doesn't love you. Who wants the love of that broken wreck? Actually, that was about it. Tom was unable to come up with anything else which he thought might get under Reginald's skin. Reginald, on the other hand, had a varied and effective arsenal. Mummy's boy. Always, always playing the victim. You're just embarrassing yourself. I pity you. You're just drifting away from everyone. "'You're obsessed with morals because you don't trust yourself. "'That's very sad. "'It might be time to consider joining the world of adults. "'You can't hide behind mummy skirts forever. "'There's a whole big world beyond your preconceptions. "'You really should explore it. "'You can't be a leader until you can gain at least two people's respect.' "'This was just the tip of the iceberg. "'Reginald also had specialized weapons for specific occasions.' He was a master marksman. He fired from the hip, casually, almost without looking, and found Tom's heart every single time. Tom would falter, dizzy with deadly, impotent rage and fear. Son of a bitch! Ward with what if he's right? And the world did seem to fit Reginald in a way which it would never fit Tom. Reginald's casual nihilism, amoral pragmatism, and expert social manipulations—these would all bring him great renown in this modern world, his new world of the twentieth century. Not so much in the nineteenth century, Tom would think, wagging a mental finger, but it seemed worse than futile to say it. Not if we could go back in time, never struck him as the most wounding of rejoinders. The once or twice he had uttered a lame comeback had been moments of great dancing joy to Reginald, who had told everyone the story of Tom's response to everyone they met with great glee for over two weeks. He stopped, just short of it starting to look pathological. He was brilliant that way. He needled just enough to humiliate, not enough to evoke sympathy for the humiliated, unless they were in private, in which case there was no point in self-policing. Tom had to stop packing. Not going home for Christmas was bringing on a dizzying, pressing throng of old memories. He lay back on his bed, image after colourful image pressed against him like aggressive flowers crowding a bee. He fell asleep, then woke in the dark, and almost missed his flight. Tom in Germany Tom arrived in Germany on November thirtieth, 1932. Klaus met him at the airport in Berlin, and they drove to a small hotel right in the heart of the city. They were going to see the sights in Berlin before taking a bus out to the small town where his family lived. Berlin was magnificent. Tom knew all about big cities having lived in London, but London had been muted since 1929, since the crash. The soft ash of depression had fallen over its mythic energy. But Berlin was nothing like that. Berlin was insane. Far underneath the madness, a dim bourgeois body could still be seen. Berlin was like a senile grandfather who occasionally tells stories of a lost and dynamic history. Tom arrived at three o'clock in the afternoon with a pack of other scratchy, yawning, vibration-dazed travellers. Klaus was waiting in the concourse. Tom found him after spending an endless time in a customs lineup. "'Destination!' the short, squat official had barked in English after glancing at Tom's passport. "'Berlin,' replied Tom. "'Anywhere else!' Tom had switched to German. "'I will be visiting a priest in the country, a friend of mine's father.' "'Your accent is bad,' said the German man, glancing up. But he closed Tom's passport and handed it back. "'Welcome to Germany, Mr. Spencer!' Klaus had hugged him extravagantly. He had graduated from Oxford in May of that year. He was taking a year off before deciding whether or not to go back for his PhD. He was very emotional. He had always been emotional, but now it seemed beyond all civilized bounds." He was in tears as he hugged Tom. Sweet Tom, he cried, it is so good to see you. Steady on, laughed Tom, attempting to extricate himself. Klaus only held him tighter. Tom shrugged mentally and grappled him back. An odd sensation possessed him. It suddenly felt as if some sort of energy were flowing from his own body into Klaus's lean form, something... "'warm and stable and reasonable and friendly. "'He's in a panic,' thought Tom. "'After a while, Klaus drew back and wiped his eyes with the back of his hand. "'An Englishman would apologize for his outburst,' thought Tom. "'How many bags do you have?' asked Klaus. "'Let's speak in German,' said Tom. "'I'm a little rusty.' "'All right, how many bags do you have?' asked Klaus in a mock German accent. Drei, said Tom. It's too far to the hotel. We'll take a cab. There's something odd here, said Tom, rocking on his heels and staring about the airport. What's that? No, what's the word? No, cults. Klaus laughed. Here everything is political. We have an election in January. No self-respecting German fanatic is going to waste his breath on foreigners. There will be plenty of time for that later. Tom Laughed, but there was something disturbing about Klaus's words. Not the last sentence, but the phrase, self-respecting German fanatic. In the taxi, the great, mad city of Berlin was arrayed around them. There were too many people, about too many for the languorous time of mid-afternoon. No, thought Tom, gazing out the window. It's not that there are too many people about, it's that they are all moving and arguing. The unemployed in England lounged, or salt or milled, and very occasionally marched. They did not gesticulate in doorways. Tom saw one man arguing with another, and his face was twisted in a hatred, a hot, biting skull. Flecks of foam flew from his mouth. The man he was arguing with pushed him against a wall, and then... The cab turned a corner, and Tom lost sight of them. Prostitutes were everywhere. The women were ugly, with thick ankles and shapeless dresses. Tom scarcely saw a group of young men who were not marching in some vague formation or singing, dressed in brown shirts, black shirts, or white shirts with red sashes tied to their arms. Their arms were stiff, their faces were masks. They had the mad resolution of men who will always march after the man in front, until their shoes dissolve, even if they stream off a cliff still singing. The taxicab brought them through the theatre district. Half the billboards seemed to be advertising on-stage nudity. The other half proclaimed their commitment to radical experiments in social realism and had monochrome portraits of weary-looking men and women These pictures were either close-ups of hollow eyes or of a line of proletariat workers walking along the horizon, various farming implements held over their sagging shoulders. Priests argued and harangued from almost every street corner. Even through the glass, Tom could hear their phrases. God will not tolerate such decadence, such debauchery, such decay. The future of Germany cannot be built on foundations of sin. Enough! Enough! Of petty self-interest, duty to the group is the heart of the fatherland. Capitalism is Jewish materialism. Man is not good enough for communism. The middle way is all. German impotence is God's punishment for secularism. Down with the French Enlightenment. We must castrate our reason to regain our faith. There were also communists. Some lectured from street corners, some from balconies, some from the low roofs of small stores. Tom recognised them instantly, the British type were no different. They were all thin, feral, with pointy little beards, uncombed hair, prominent teeth, wild gesticulations, and had no compunctions about sharing their spittle. Their phrases mixed with the priests, the vapour from their mouths puffing like little cannons. All power to the Soviets! We demand an end to the tyranny of capital! Germany can only be revived through collectivization. We must show the rest of Europe what socialism can look like. Individualism is dead. Long live the collective. Property only benefits the rich. Sacrifice will set us free. Unions will not liberate you. Only communism can give you jobs. And there were the Nazis. When the cab stopped for a light, a swarthy man ran up to the cab, with a few other unkempt youths behind him. "'Lock your doors!' snarled the cab driver, pulling out a gun from under the seat. The group of youths swarmed around the cab, jeering and shouting slogans. The only one which Tom could discern was Carriage of the Bourgeoisie, which he thought was rather poor. One man pressed a pink sheet of paper against the dirty window of the taxi. It was a picture of a fat Jewish-looking man crucified on a swastika. Above the drawing read, DEATH TO CAPITAL! As the cab lurched forward, the picture jerked across the glass, smearing the dirt. Next to him, Klaus giggled. His face was pale, nervous, excited. My God! he whispered. What excess! God-damned Communists! muttered the cab driver. He half-turned in his seat. Where are you at, brother? he asked Klaus. I am an observer, replied Klaus. No time for that anymore, grunted the cabby. Take this, he said, handing over a pamphlet. Tom began to panic. There were too many people on the road, and the cabby was not looking ahead. I've seen this, said Klaus, but my friend might be interested. He passed it over to Tom. Tom glanced at it. It was a blood-red booklet with the crest of Germany on the cover and a swastika. He opened it. Klaus looked at him intensely. It read, Platform of the German National Socialist Party. Tom flipped through the booklet. It was surprisingly professional. 7. We demand that the state shall make it its first duty to promote the industry and livelihood of citizens. 15. We demand extensive development of provision for old age. 16. 16. We demand creation and maintenance of a healthy middle class, immediate communalization of department stores and their lease at a cheap rate to small traders. 20. We demand development of the gifted children of poor parents, whatever their class or occupation, at the expense of the state. 21. The state must see to raising the standards of health in the nation. Tom closed the booklet and turned to Klaus. It's a fantasy, he said. Klaus grinned. Yes, but that doesn't make it false. They were sharing a room in a small hotel one step up from a hostel. The proprietor, a man in his late fifties, overweight and red-faced, was almost obscenely obsequious. He followed them into their room, a torrent of empty speech spraying from him like cold water from a burst pipe. He referred to them only in the third-person plural. The gentleman will no doubt wish to... If the gentlemen have any doubt about our sincerity in this matter, arrangements can be made for said gentlemen to... After a few minutes of this, Tom stopped listening, an old skill, of course. Klaus threw himself into a ratty yellow-green armchair. He regarded the fat man with amusement, but that amusement slowly faded into contempt. Then he yawned. All right, he said, waving his hand. You're boring me now. Go away. The fat man did not stop babbling, but backed out of the room, ducking his head. Klaus got up, following him closely, and said, Yes, 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 and closed the door on the man while he was still explaining the schedule for the communal bathrooms. Oh good God, laughed Klaus. I say, said Tom in English, unpacking, that was a bit much. Klaus threw himself back into the armchair, twisting a blonde forelock. These burgermeisters never know when to shut up. I meant you, thought Tom, but... Kept quiet. They were going to be spending a lot of time together. "'Listen,' said Klaus, wallowing back in his chair, "'I have to tell you a few things about Berlin before we go traipsing around. "'Germany is in the throes of a world-historical moment, "'so this is no time for fucking around.' "'Tom thought he never used to swear, "'and also I haven't heard capital speech in a while. First and most important,' Said Klaus, don't, for the love of heaven, get involved in any discussions. You will be accosted three times a minute. Just nod, take their pamphlets, and shout, down with whatever you dislike. Or speak English. We like the English. Empire builders. Good model. Second, if anyone hits you, you just take it and keep walking. These boys are all itching for a fight, especially university men. Really? Yes, there are a lot of them. They're all in gangs. Tom laughed. What do they do, give you paper cuts with their manifestos? I'm telling you, said Klaus, don't fuck around. Germany is by far the best educated country in the world at the moment. The gangs with degrees are the most dangerous. They go all the way. They are uber committed. Give them a wide berth. Don't wear expensive clothes. No fear of that, said Tom, putting his worn clothes away in a low stained dresser. Women will grab you on the street. Well, that's nothing new, said Tom to hide his growing apprehension. We have ten million unemployed. Women are desperate, but it's important to remember, if you want it, you don't have to pay for it. I've never really thought otherwise. Klaus smiled. They're just desperate and depressed. It's a dry well, but a bottomless one. Well, we share a room. Oh, Lord, laughed Klaus. I don't... "'Go in for any of that anymore. That that was for seventeen. "'Hmm,' said Tom. "'Anything else?' "'Well, storekeepers will grab your arm, especially if you look like a tourist. "'It's very Jewish. Just push them away. Don't restrain yourselves. "'If you touch a communist, a pack of them will jump you and break you up.' Klaus smiled. "'No one comes to the defence of the shopkeepers. "'Also, there's the donation business. Do you have any small change?' Tom shook his head. I changed my money before coming. Klaus nodded slowly. All right, I'll go downstairs and get you change. You can't walk around without fennigs. Men will want you to donate to their course. They are rather trigger-happy. Do you know the German word for proletariat? Tom rolled his eyes. Come on, I studied German at Oxford. Just throw them a fennig or two and say proletariat over and over. That usually gets you away. Anything else? Klaus smiled, his eyes glittering. Look, you are a rather punchy Anglo-Saxon, so I know you'll only take a little of this advice, but for God's sake, don't fight back, no matter what. Everyone under 30 who is in the streets during the day is just itching for a fight, and they don't care about rules. If you get into a fight, watch your balls, go for the eyes, get it over with quickly, don't fuck around. Tom shivered. Suddenly he missed his little room, his naps, his books and long reveries what the hell am I doing here he thought of his family sitting down for Christmas a month hence and thought that he would be stung with emotion but he wasn't this place while very passionate was not conducive to his kind of feeling so what's on the agenda well some of my stuff and some of your stuff I have to go to a few meetings well I don't have to but I want to Everything we read about at Oxford is happening right here. But I think you'll find it interesting. The second thing is that I have to go get my pilot's license. We'll do that at the end of next week. It's at a little airfield about an hour out of town. Then we go to my father's place. Sure. As for your stuff, we'll go and watch the death throes of Parliament. That sounds appealing. Oh, it's not like the British Parliament. It's just this weird abortion foisted on Germany in 1919. We have the most ridiculous mongrel constitution. It might not end in January's election, but probably, probably. Klaus trailed off, his eyes seeming to lose their focus. So we'll go watch a few debates. Great. And we have to see some art. Art is actually the main reason why we're here. Tom smiled. You mean on the planet or in Berlin? I'm not going to say both, because that's just too glib for my palate, but everything will be answered in January. All the artists will die then, creatively. We have to see things now, right on the edge of the precipice. That's when everyone is the most naked, screams the loudest. Klaus's mouth loosened. And it's dirt cheap during the day, subsidized by the state. For students, the unemployed, good. We'll look at the cathedrals, of course, the museums, anything else you want. There was a short pause. Tom sat down on the edge of the bed. His eyes were only about four feet from Klaus's face. Klaus, he said softly, yes, Tom? I have two little questions, if you don't mind. Shoot. First of all, what did you mean when you said... About the shopkeepers grabbing people, it's very Jewish. Klaus smiled. I was wondering if that would offend your English sensibilities. Look, to put your mind at ease, let me say that I have nothing against the Jews per se. It's a German phrase. It, has, it doesn't have much to do with Judaism. It's about materialism, or grasping selfishness, or obsessing about yourself, or your own little tribe, instead of the good of the nation. If someone profits from general misery, they are said to have Jewed the Germans. But it's more of a description of behavior. German Catholics can Jew the Jews. So why call it Jewish? Well, it's a Jewish trait, said Klaus serenely. Not exclusively Jewish, of course. A Jewish man could be a good man, an honorable man, but he has to give up certain aspects of his religion. Klaus leaned forward, crossing his legs under his body. In Christianity, for instance, the commandment is, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. In Judaism, the belief is, if you get cheated, it is your own damn fault. Tom stared at Klaus. So there are moral differences between Jews and Christians, which is the source of endless conflict, endless problems. And we can see from the Middle East that it's almost impossible for opposing religious groups to live in harmony. Eventually all but one of them has to go. What are you talking about? asked Tom. Nothing radical. Either we will convert them or they will convert us. I respect the contributions of the Jews to abstract thought, Marx, Freud, Einstein, Spinoza, von Mises. All very progressive, all very modern, all morally empty. All just abstractions. But that is not what calls to the German soul. That is not what sets our blood to pumping. We are a myth-based race. Wagner knows that. We will always choose a demanding ideal over a dry abstraction. We live passionately. We don't like to analyze our emotions. Hmm, said Tom. I can understand being against a Jew because he is a criminal or a terrorist, but to be against a man because of an accident of birth, that is not rational. No one said it was rational. We've gone beyond the desert of the syllogism. But I'm Not arguing that Jews themselves are bad, just that certain types of thought are bad. Those thoughts may be a little more concentrated in the Jewish community. We dislike selfish individualism or those who put their own tribe above the national good. Maybe 5% more Jews are like that than the general population, but that's enough. I mean, if there were no negative characteristics common to the Jewish community, then why would the word be used as a pejorative? Sometimes, smiled Klaus, you have to work from the conception backwards. All right, said Tom, thinking, I can probably live with this if we stay away from the topic. What was the other question? It's less thorny. What's this about being a pilot? Klaus's face suddenly dropped its cynical mask. He rubbed his cheeks violently, bringing a flush which looked like a cross between being chilled and embarrassed. Oh, Tom, he cried in joy, allowing Tom to remember what he liked about Klaus. It's the most wonderful thing in the world. I always loved my flights to England. I got to know the pilot. He explained everything. It's just like driving a car that can go up. All right, parking is slightly more complicated, but there are no roundabouts. And such freedom... You've never known anything like it. You are a mile tall. You can be upside down in a heartbeat and above the clouds. It is like a world of blue above a land of snow. It almost feels like I'm crashing when I flow down into a cloud. I love it to death. Tom smiled. You'll have to take me up. I'd love to. I've been training for the last month. That's why I'm in Berlin. I go out every day. I love the old Junkers-Larsen J-12 monoplane. I'm almost ready for my solo, which is in two weeks. Um, do you have to go every day now? asked Tom, picturing wandering the wild streets of Berlin alone. No, I took two weeks off. I need to do a bit of studying every day just to stay fresh. And we'll be at the airport for two days. I want to practice before my solo. Well, I'm sure you'll do fine. Congratulations in advance. Thanks, said Klaus, jumping up. But enough of this. You did not come to Berlin to stare at the walls of a cheap hotel. Let us go and see the sights. So they went to see the sights. And this is what they saw. Packs of young men roamed the streets. There was a confusing array of shirt colours. Red, white, black, brown. Klaus pointed out the various groups, the communists fascists, Nazis, social Democrats, and described the various alliances and hatreds between them. Earlier this year, Hitler seemed to be on his way out, so there was this huge tide of men from the Nazis to the communists. Now he's doing better, so they're all coming back with more behind them. They've actually joined forces. You see that group over there, both communists and Nazis? They're collecting—I can't read it from here, but I assume that they're collecting money in support of the striking public transportation workers— The Soviet Comintern has told all the communist leaders to attack the trade unions and forget about the Nazis. Moscow considers the trade union leaders to be the real traitors because they want to better the working man's lot under capitalism, which they think is impossible, of course. That will all change when we get closer to an election. But they fight like dogs. But really, there's not much difference between the communists and the Nazis. A Nazi is like a beefsteak, brown on the outside, red on the inside. Same difference. The communists agree that the republic has to be destroyed, after which they destroy the Nazis. It's the dialectic. The republic is the thesis, Nazism the antithesis, communism the synthesis. Tom frowned. How is communism the synthesis between a republic and Nazism? Tom laughed gaily. (laughs) Heavens, Tom, you're in Germany now. You'll have to leave all that analytic British empiricism behind. Tom did not respond. Klaus sighed and said with a smile, it is the synthesis because it is believed to be the synthesis. What is happening now is that the capitalist powers that be are fighting a political war against the Nazis and communists. The capitalists want to hold on to their power, they give the government money and the government gives them grants, favors and preferential trade policies, but it's not working. Since for Over two years, the government has been trying to jumpstart the economy. Tariffs, unemployment insurance, premiums, and taxes have been raised. They poured money into public works, restricted foreign exchange, and now all the youngsters have this lovely, time-consuming, 20-month voluntary labor service. They've mostly socialized the banks, cartels, even the labor unions. Private property is almost gone. The profit motive is no more. It's all been very heady. But everything still keeps getting worse. That's why people are panicking. All this government control is failing. So they're getting sick and tired of this endless uncertainty. And? And, well, people are focusing more on letting go. Letting go? I mean, turning things over to the state. Well, nothing has worked, not really, for 20 years. Do you know, I remember being a kid and having to run from doorway to doorway in 1923 because people were just taking to the rooftops and shooting at anyone they saw. During the Great Inflation, Klaus nodded. My father's savings, all of them, were in a fixed interest mutual bond. It matured in January of 1923. When he cashed it in, he had just enough to buy a cup of coffee. No tip. Of course, for him, it was a punishment from God, something to do with greed and usury. Very sad. Klaus shrugged. So we recovered from that somehow, and then the crash of 1929. Now, three years later, things just keep getting worse. We have 10 million unemployed. 10 million young men who can't get married, can't have sex. What are they going to do? They see all this half-hearted meddling with the economy isn't working. They're getting impatient. They want action, results, change, now! I think as a whole, they've been very patient. They see all these rich Junkers, fat men in waistcoats, and they want some of the action. And every gang, every special interest group is hanging off the neck of the state, the taxpayers, capitalists versus shop owners, unions versus capitalists, farmers versus city dwellers, importers versus domestic producers, lower classes versus upper classes, creditors versus debtors. This republic of ours stopped working a long time ago, if it ever even did work. It's just a war of all against all. The government can't please everyone, so it borrows. Our crash came about because the Yanks called in their loans when their stock markets fell. People are tired of it all. They just want jobs, homes, peace and quiet. Liberty doesn't work. Enough. Enough. Hmm, said Tom, glancing at his friend. He couldn't tell where Klaus's dry, almost sociological tone had gone. His narrative seemed very personal all of a sudden tom wondered if klaus was employed so continued klaus almost all the university students are nazis more than half of them card carrying in march in the vote for president hitler got more than 11 million votes in july in the reichstag votes he got twice the votes he got in 1930 the nazis are now the largest party what was the percentage against against the nazis yes Almost 64, said Klaus. Tom tried not to hear any regret in Klaus's voice. But the communists mostly vote with the Nazis, so it's not as big as it seems. And besides, the nationalists, the biggest party before, are in league with Hitler. My father and I argue about this all the time. It's one reason why you and I are here rather than in Konigsberg. The centrists are trying to use Hitler's mass appeal to keep their own power, but they have nothing to offer. They just want to stay in government. Von Papen got on the radio and said that we've got to stop arguing about socialism versus capitalism. Fine, we say. What are your solutions? The Nazis, whatever one thinks of them, have solutions. They know where they want to go. Where we should all go. Democracy? There's no convictions. Nothing to stir up blood. Nothing we would be willing to lay our lives down for. Are you back in university? Asked Tom, turning away from the sight of Klaus's face. I mean... "'What are you going to do next year?' "'I don't think there will be universities next year,' said Klaus simply. What, "'What do you mean?' "'They're too violent right now, even for they beat up professors they disagree with. "'The government does nothing. "'No one believes in freedom of thought.' "'Klaus raised a mocking fist. "'Everything for the revolution! "'I can't really learn anything there. "'So come back to England.' Klaus nodded slowly, his eyes glazed. A great lassitude seemed to be folding over something terrible in his soul. But uh, this is my homeland. This is... The world is changing right here. Over the next year, everything will be... I can't not be here. I am a witness, and in my witnessing, I might have an effect. These Nazis, what if they get into power? Klaus shrugged. That will just be the next thing for Germany, the next stage. I mean, it wouldn't happen if it wasn't supposed to. Tom smiled tightly. He had been involved in enough arguments with Klaus before, as an undergraduate, about the best of all possible worlds to have any optimism about uprooting it now. I mean, continued Klaus, all these passions have to come from something authentic, something real— April, they ban the stormtroopers and Hitler's personal army. June, they make them legal again, after a deal between Hitler and von Papen. Wave upon wave of political murders, madness in the streets. So in August, they make political murder a capital crime. That night, a Nazi gang kicks a Silesian communist to death. Leave with his larynx. They're arrested. Hitler threatens and demonstrates. They're not put to death. Who can fight for such milksups? These kind of diseased, futile old men should not be allowed to survive. It would be indecent. "'Klaus?' said Tom, his voice shaking. "'Are you a Nazi?' "'Klaus smiled. "'Yes, no, yes, no. "'Ah, you English. "'Who can answer such a question? "'I like, I don't like, some good, some bad, "'some understanding, some recoiling. "'I am an observer. "'And if there was a ballot in front of you right now, "'who do you check off?' "'Oh, really? Tom!' cried Klaus. I think that I am just a bit too subtle for that kind of democratic horse race. God damn it, thought Tom, but he's an oil devil when pressed. I don't like violence, said Klaus, but I understand frustration. The question is not what have they done, but rather why have they done it? Root causes are final answers. The Nazis are expressing something in this country. What? Are we all just bad people, toilet-trained too harshly, itching to rape our mothers and castrate our fathers. This is a spontaneous explosion of something... something unconscious. It is very powerful, very deep. We can only understand a little of it intellectually. It is something which must be grasped with the heart. It cannot be held in the head. Everyone is just reacting to each other. No one is striving to understand. What did the Nazis want? Or rather, how did they end up in a position where their desires are even important? Eleven million Germans voted for them. Were they trying to say something to the people in power? Maybe no one had listened to them, so they turned radical in a desperate desire to be heard. Aha! Said the government, well, we cannot listen to you if you take such a path. But of course they took such a path because they weren't being listened to. So no one steps back from the line, and now perhaps it is too late. Pride Is the great enemy of human relations, Tom. If we only understood each other, we should all be brothers. Klaus's voice trailed off, and Tom had the idea that he was continuing his conversation in his own mind. His use of the word brothers suddenly brought Reginald's face to mind. This is my brother's best friend, he thought, feeling a little dizzy. And my brother wants a job in the foreign office. That night they went to see a play called Islington. They sat in the back. The audience was very noisy. There wasn't much to hear on stage. A man came out in a tight, motley chessboard outfit. His hair was lacquered back. His face was heavily rouged. He had an air of sniggering insolence. He bowed in an exaggerated manner to the audience and said in a thin, high, sneering voice, "'Gentle friends,' "'It is with a heavy heart that I approach you this evening. "'We had planned on giving you a play, "'but find instead that we must give an explanation. "'It is heard in the conservative, "'and here the man pretended to spit to one side, press, "'that our offerings are decadent and incomprehensible. "'We find this most distressing.' We have never aimed to be incomprehensible. True, we have aimed at something slightly higher than simple bourgeois drama, but we have also escaped the communists. Neither the kitchen sink nor the drawing room are for us. We have deigned to be explorers and invited some of our good friends along for the ride. We do not claim to have all the answers, but that should scarcely be offensive to the conservatives who cannot claim to have any of them. There were some catcalls and jeers, and the thin man leaned back, pretending to stroke an imaginary moustache. Thus, boys and girls, we have decided to provide a running commentary on our little piece tonight. Now, I do not for a moment believe that there are any conservatives in our pretty crowd tonight. I see no bloated waists or narrow viewpoints, but it might come to pass, my lovelies, that you shall have to describe what you saw tonight to your parents or "'Friends of your parents, and all I ask is that you are gentle with what your eyes have beheld, "'and make sure to bury the bodies properly.' "'The man winked and then ran to the back of the stage "'and retrieved a tall slender bar stool with a tan cushion. "'He leapt up on the stool like a spider and sat on it, like a gargoyle. "'Now,' he said, "'the first thing we do is lower the lights to allow the audience entrance to our world.' And to hide any blowjobs being performed in the back row? The next thing is that we must present an opening motif. A man came wandering out, dressed in the ragged clothes of a tramp. Now this man is our first metaphor. Does he represent the Republic? Why no, of course not. If he represented the Republic, he would be in a top hat and we would be in rags. Does he represent the Depression? No, you can see said the man leaping off the stool and approaching the tramp he lifted the tramp's lifeless arm and let it drop he is quite lifeless and thus cannot represent the depression if he were to represent the depression he would have to be armed the thin man pulled a gun from behind him and handed it to the ragged man now perhaps he represents the depression does he represent capitalism here the man pointed the gun at the audience Or does he represent the anti-intellectualism of the honest and hearty German peasant? The ragged man turned and pointed his gun at the thin man, who laughed nervously and shook his head. No, let's not have him represent that. He reached up and tried to push the gun away, but it kept returning to point at him each time. Let's have him represent the toiling masses, the, the world spirit, the hopes of the Lutherans, the poverty of the human condition the ragged man started advancing on the thin man who ran around the stage shouting out various metaphorical possibilities. Finally, the ragged man grappled the thin man to the stage and sat on his chest. The thin man wailed in terror as the gun turned towards him. No, no, he screamed. I I must demand that you represent the Republic after all. The ragged man stared at him, then shrugged and shouted out, I hate you, father, and shot himself in the temple. The lights went dark. There was a short pause. Then the thin man's voice said softly, Is that long enough? That was so the man in the back row could come. Another pause. A chorus of sexual groans from the men in the back row. Excellent, said the thin man's voice. There was the sound of a finger snap. The lights came on glaringly. The thin man stood up. The ragged man was gone. He said, You see, we are now out of the realm of metaphor, because if I were still to be within the realm of metaphor, I should say that getting the Republic to kill itself is a wonderful thing, because then there's no body to dispose of. He smiled. All right. Now I am outside the realm of metaphor, really. Except this thing is itchy, He said, reaching up and tearing off his wig. He had a crude swastika on his bald head. And this is only symbolic, he said, using the wig to wipe away the swastika. Now we are done, he said, purely out of the realm of metaphor. Except, he reached down and pulled open his own top. A pair of half-crushed breasts popped out. A woman's voice came from the performer in relief as she massaged them. Those were really getting crushed. And now you know that when the ragged man screamed, I hate you, father, he could not have been referring to me unless he thought that his father was a woman. The woman smiled. She lifted her fake breasts out of her open top and started juggling them. The lights went dark. The play gave Tom a headache lights kept going on and off the thin woman man changed sexes roles accents and was in and out of the action in a most confusing manner the audience roared in good humor seeming to be in on some sort of joke which his british brain could not fathom twice tom truly believed that the play was over he applauded and then found that the thin woman started applauding back he stopped and the woman cried out that his applause had been wonderful and incited the audience to start applauding Tom. And then Tom thought that the play was over because the lights had been on for ten minutes and everyone was getting their coats. But it wasn't. The lights went off again. It was easier when the play was truly over because everyone on stage was naked and applauded the audience with fake hands tied to their knees, breasts and testicles wobbling. Tom and Klaus went out with a group of other young men and women, some of whom Klaus knew well. There seemed to be some sort of running gag about whether Klaus was gay or not. The odds were openly discussed. "'Look at this!' cried a heavy-set woman, counting down her raised fingers. "'He keeps his room spotless!' "'Count that fucking finger back up, slut!' said a red-haired woman. "'He's a son of a goddamn Lutheran!' "'Half, then!' "'He's been to England!' "'Yeah!' sneered a fat man. Boarding school in England, I'm sure that straightened him out. Limp handshake, said the woman, counting down another finger. Could be from hetero-masturbation, protested the red-haired woman. He's got the waist of an Olympic gymnast, said the first woman, and not the male kind. He never dates. Have you noticed that German women are getting less and less attractive? A sallow-faced man made... A two-finger mustache thrust out his hand and imitated an Austrian accent. In the Reich, he shouted, every woman will have a husband. Shut the fuck up, hissed the red-haired woman, grabbing the man's arm and pulling it down. He treated it as a game and kept it up, shouting, In the Reich, there will be no spinsters. All ugly women will be fucked if I have to do the dirty job myself. There was a sudden silence. It seemed almost absurdly melodramatic, and Klaus giggled. A group of three men stood in front of the table. They wore black shirts. Something funny about the Fuhrer, friends? asked one of them, a chisel faced youth with a missing earlobe. His tone was not friendly. Heil Huns, said the sallow faced man. He stared at the men, then took one of the fingers he was using to make a mustache and stuck it up his nose. The three SS men laughed. The laughter went on and on. Tom edged back from the table. Great fucking town, Berlin. He did not like this laughter. It was the laugh of a sadist with privacy, instruments, soundproofing, a victim, and lots of time to kill. Klaus, he whispered, move away. The first SS man turned to one of his comrades, laughing uproariously. He is picking his nose with the Fuhrer. Did you see that? Staggering. "'Does he wipe his ass with Mussolini?' asked the other man. The third one frowned and leaned towards the first. "'We like Mussolini now, right?' he whispered. Tom slunk back out of view, then got out of his chair and went to the bar. The barman, a fat, although so many Germans were fat, that Tom found that he had to be constantly recalibrating, bald man, came up to him. "'Nazis,' said Tom, his eyes wide. The barman leaned in, breathing through, it seemed, only one working nostril. Thanks, comrade, he said, winking. Tom glanced past him and saw a framed picture of Lennon hanging over the bar. The barman rang a bell, pointed, and half a dozen youths sprang up from the bar and threw themselves on the SS men. Tom saw the yellow flash of brass knuckles. The barman pulled a baseball bat from over the hanging glasses and gave it to Tom. Go to it, boy, he wheezed. A piercing whistle cut through the shouting melee. A spray of blood rose in the air. Tom was reminded of a time when he had trodden on a paintbrush resting in a can. Same arc, same droplets. And then, then he saw Klaus. Well, he didn't really see Klaus. He recognized Klaus through his friend's mask of hatred, of ferocity. last picture of down on the head of the lead SS man, blood and hair mixed with the froth of beer. "'God damn it!' cried a man, grabbing the bat from Tom's hands and beating his way through to the fight. The whistle sounded out again. The door burst open, and a stream of black-and-brown-shirted SA and SS men came running into the bar. One was so tall that, as he ran in, his head slammed into a low-ceiling beam, and he dropped like a bag of wet cement seeming to have knocked himself out. Tom almost laughed. Then he saw that Klaus was leaning back over his prey, his lips loose in predatory exultation, his eyes closed in a kind of unholy ecstasy. Scraps of singing rang out through the battling crowds. Tom clawed his way through the bodies. The memory of his day in the London street with Klaus and Reginald was clear, strong, and grabbed Klaus, who was now looking down at his foamy, bloody hands in horror. "'My eyes have gone rapid,' he said, holding them up to a feral-faced SS man. Tom saw the SS man draw his hand back and caught the diamond gleam of a blade. He grabbed Klaus's jacket and pulled him away. Dragging Klaus back through the crowd, his head down and shoulders hunched, Tom felt icy terror as something sharp jabbed into his side. He shifted his grip to the middle of Klaus's collar, feeling his own side, half expecting to feel the sloppy sausages of his own intestines hanging out. But it was just a piece of broken plate jammed under warring bodies. The barman was roaring and hurling beer bottles rather senselessly, Tom thought, given the complexity of the melee. Tom wrestled Klaus around behind the bar. Klaus's eyes seemed to be clear. "'Called me a goddamned choir-boy!' He snarled, then his eyes widened. Tom, Tom, how do they know? Are you all right? Uh, yes, said Klaus, feeling his own torso. I'm thirsty. You should see the other guy, said Tom, suddenly wanting to laugh. I hope he's all right, said Klaus. I'm sure he's... Listen, do the police ever come? Klaus cocked his head. What? Do the. Are the police coming? shouted Tom. No, not really, not here. So what do you do? Haven't been to town in a while. I was with my father. Wait until it dies down. What if the Nazis win? What? What if the Nazis win? Klaus shrugged. Then we're Nazis. Just as he said this, there were two gunshots sharp and clear. Something wet poured on Tom's back, and he prayed that it wasn't, but it poured on and on, and he realized it couldn't be blood, not that much. Although some of these Germans are very fat, he thought, and then thought that he should stop obsessing about their weight, at least for a little while. From his vantage point, Tom could see some men running out the door, Nazis and Communists doing little gymnastic leaps and whooping. They did not seem overly concerned with their fallen comrades. Gingerly, Slowly, Tom got up. Klaus's hand was clutched to his trouser leg, and Tom disengaged it absently, peering over the bar. All the energy of the fight seemed to have gone out of the room. Groans, coughing, shifting bodies. A brief song, a flailing arm, a curse. It was quite dark, many lights had been broken. "'Do you want to check on your friends?' asked Tom, looking down at Klaus. He heard a noise to his side. He turned his face. The fat barman glared at him in infinite Teutonic contempt. Fucking coward, he snarled. A huge fist appeared. Tom disappeared.